Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. It's time for the Life Writing Podcast with your hosts, authors and screenwriters Stephen Barnes and Tanana Reeve Dew. All about creating the project of your dreams while living a balanced artist life. Be the hero or heroine of your own story. Sponsored by LifeWritingPremium.com. Get ready to write for your life. Welcome to the Life Writing Podcast, where married authors and screenwriters, Stephen Barnes and Tananari do talk about writing during stressful times, breaking into Hollywood and balancing life. Every week, we'll share more tips on how to build a better life while you create your dream projects. Even if it's only at the rate of one sentence a day. Life writing is the application of the tools of writing to life and the tools of life to your writing. Hey, everybody. Hi. Hello. Wait. Hey, everybody. Hey. Hi. Hi, from Kansas City, Missouri. Yes, indeed. We're here sitting here on the 38th floor of the, is this, this is Sheraton? It's a Sheraton. The Sheraton Hotel. And this is your you know, your host, Stephen Barnes. And Tanana Reed Duke. Right. And welcome to the Life Writing welcome Podcast. Welcome to the Life Writing Podcast. I mean, it's we're be, not at home. We're, we're not, not at home. We're so, on the road. This is the Life Writing Podcast Roadshow. It's, it is our roadshow. And, you know, we'll be doing these kinds of things when we're on the road. It's, you know, the interesting thing is it's, it's a little bit homey. You know, it just doing this feels a little bit more connected to our lives. You know, oh, we, yeah. we've made a commitment to sharing as much of our our real lives with you as we possibly can. So doing this on the road, you know, from from the room, we're feeling a little disconnected, a little scrambled. Tonight yes. we're feeling a little off, off oh, balance. I am so off balance. And we'll tell you all about it a we'll little tell bit all later. That. But let's just kind of go into what's happening now. Let's just talk about then what's going on. Okay. Okay. Yes. While I was fumbling to find the music, <laughs> Steve went to answer the door. Room service is here with our dinner and we were on a schedule, y'all. So we will be eating while we do the podcast. That'll be a first for us. But you know, life goes on. One of the things that's going on is this dinner time. That's what's going on. <laughs> And we're both on, well, opening ceremonies for the World Fantasy Convention. Let me go grab a fork. While you, Steve, tell them what's going on with you. Okay. So I'm drinking a Mountain Dew. <laughs> Most important thing I'm working on right now is a Star Wars book. And what I wanted to say about that is that I've been in a very long place where it doesn't feel like anything is working. I'm where I'm just having to to keep going forward based on faith, really, because I've been through the process many times. And I go process from creating an outline to an expanded outline and then breaking that into a script and then working on the script until it feels like a full story. You know, is, is this a Star Wars movie? Then I start turning the script into a book. And the 
the script has been a book for a while now, and I'm, I'm going through expanding it. It was only about 30, 30,000 words. But as I expand it outwards, I'm slowly finding sentences and paragraphs that work, you know, characters that are saying things that are interesting and seem to be valid within the world of the story. Sometimes in, in the best of them are when they kind of catch me by surprise. It's like, oh, I, I didn't know that. Or characters have relationships that are a surprise or there are other things going on. So I I realized that there's a, well, that there's a possibility that 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 there's that the villain has a different nature than I originally thought. That had been developing for a while, but but that continues to develop. And in a way where I think that as of two days ago, it's feeling like I'm emerging from the shadow back into catching glimmers of the sun. I'm I'm starting to so great. I'm starting to see what it is that I want to do with this. And that's a good feeling because you know otherwise it's it can be a lot like feeling like I'm falling. So that's the most important thing that's going on right now. You know, other is you know supporting you in your in your endeavors. So let's go right into what it is you're doing because what you're doing is really interesting. There was a huge actually in Sunday's print edition but in t- today, we're we're taping this on a Thursday, full disclosure. In today's digital edition, the LA Times did a great profile on me, written by Paula Woods. N- knew her back in the day when sh- she was writing mystery novels. So she was part of that 90s cohort of authors who started to find light in the, in the wake of Terry McMillan. And now she's a reporter and wrote an amazing <laughs> profile. It's, I think the... What is the headline? Let me let me look at the headline really fast. It's probably up on my screen because, of course, it's up on my screen. A black horror is having a big moment. So is its pioneer, Tanana Reeve Do. I mean, I personally feel more comfortable with phrasing like one of its pioneers because I know Linda Addison was in the house uh, when I got there. But I understand the uh, the intent and I appreciate it. I have been doing this for a long time. And unfortunately, when you've been doing something long enough, you do become a pioneer. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I published my first novel in 1995. Better than, better than fossil. Yeah, it's true. The, it, so is its fossils. <laughs> it's not a review, too. And it's so, I mean, my book is The Reformatory. It is coming out on Halloween, which is the 31st, which is a Tuesday. And some people are reporting out in the streets that they are finding copy. Finding in the wild. <laughs> finding copy. In fact, someone made a meme on Twitter. You want I should find it for you? You know, like in the New Jersey bookstore. <laughs> but it's out there. It's out there. And honestly, I was just telling Steve this. I am frankly a little bit overstimulated and overwhelmed. Because... Can I maybe give you a back rub before we go back down for opening ceremony? I would love that. Yeah, I would love to do that. I would love... I thought you were about to say it right now, in which case, bye, y'all. No, but... Uh, no. <laughs> no, 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 no. Oh, my God. While we're talking, we need to do this more often. This kind of podcast, like on the road, in the wild. Oh, that does feel good. So here's hmm. the thing about authoring. <laughs> okay, authoring... And writing, being a writer and being an author are two different but related things. The writer part of you, or at least let me talk about myself, the writer part of me is that part that wants to be behind a closed door where I can 
pretend I'm in an, a remote mountain cabin and I just disappear into the story. I remember when Steve was just talking right now, of course, I remember he just said it. Steve was just talking now about how his characters are surprising him. Thank you, baby. Mm-hmm. How his characters are surprising him. I had a similar moment when I was writing the reformatory. And I will synopsize this novel really, really quickly, just for the purposes of telling this story. It's it's about a 12-year-old boy named Robert Stevens, who's based on my great uncle, who did pass away, unfortunately, at the Dozier School for Boys in 1937. But I fictionalized his story. I've set it in 1950. And it's about a 12-year-old boy who is sent to a reformatory for six months over basically a schoolyard, almost like a schoolyard tussle, where the other boy just as easily could have been sentenced. But he's the son of a very rich white planter. So guess who ended up going to the reformatory and who didn't end up going? So the novel is about both the monsters, the human monsters Robert has to deal with inside of the reformatory, but he's really afraid of the ghosts, which he calls haints. And it's basically about navigating human monsters and haints inside a reformatory while outside his poor sister, Gloria, who basically was taking care of him after their father was forced to flee, is using every mechanism she can think of to help her brother. I mean, just talking to anyone she can for help, for money. She does, she pulls off miracles. And I don't think it's spoilery to say that one of the miracles she pulls off is finding a civil rights attorney named John Dorsey, who's named after my father, John Dorsey Dew Jr. And John Dorsey is like a 26-year-old or 27-year-old attorney for the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. And back to my story, now that you have the backstory, when you talked about your characters coming to life, I remember when I first, in the scene when I first introduced John Dorsey, and I was picturing him as this very handsome young man. And my father was is still handsome, but was extremely handsome as a young man. And my teenage girl meeting him for the first time, I wanted her to be focused on her brother and the case. And I was thinking there's like this 10-year age difference between them. He's not so old that she's not going to see him as a like a man or even potentially a prospect. And she's not so young that he might not look at her. So I was like, how do I... I don't want that energy in my scene. And then it popped out of his mouth. Oh, that's the same thing my wife says. I was like, oh, thank you, John Dorsey. You're married? Oh, problem solved. <laughs> and that's what you're talking about. Sometimes they just, they surprise, like I'm trying to work out this problem in my head and the character just popped out with it. Well, I think that, first of all, what that means is, you have your skills integrated at a very, very deep level, unconscious competence, way down there. But the other thing is something that Jerry Pornell talked about when I was working with him, and that is that questions will come up, problems will come up in the in writing of a book. Bad writers try to cover it up. Mm-hmm. And Robert McKee said the same thing, mm-hmm. that good writers will take that problem and pull it out and look at it directly and say, you know, I got a problem here. You know, this is this is a problem that if you will clarify the problems in your stories, you then get to let your unconscious mind chew at them and start working on them. Same thing is true about life in general. People who won't look at the problems in their lives don't have the chance to solve them. That is so true. You know, so the the cost of pretending that you don't have problems is manifold. You know, just first of all, just being dishonest with yourself. Mm-hmm. Secondly, the fact that you're cheating yourself of the chance to have a better life. 
that that you are that your people are afraid that if they know that this is a problem that it's going to increase their misery writers bad writers who believe that there are plot holes in their stories and they're just going to ignore it and their audience won't see it either right. that's it, that kind of contempt for your audience you, you, your oh, audience is going to feel that one day. they're going to realize you think i don't care about there this. is no quicker way to throw me off the back of a horror story than to pull that kind of crap leaving those kind of holes i mean the most common thing is like people's reactions to things like wait this huge thing just happened to you in the closet and you're not going to say anything anybody you're just going to like let that roll off and you're not going to be weirded out or reflect you're just going to let that roll off your shoulder and move to the next scene i don't think so no I mean, it's like watching a horror movie where you know the monster is killing girls in the sorority house and nobody seems to really notice that these people are <laughs> gone and there's a body in every Hello. room you know <laughs> You haven't called the police. You haven't done this. You haven't done this. If you say our problem is that we can't bring in the police, we can't afford to have police come All in. All we need is some kind of explanation. Yeah. Two seconds. Okay, I got you it. You know, there's a red flasher outside the window, and you can hear a voice at the door, and the monster is, you know, the, the, the killer has his hand over the over the girl's throat upstairs, and she's trying to figure out a way. You know, this, you, you turn. Something. Give us something. It, it's you, you turn a problem into the solution. Right. Or as McKean would say, you turn exposition to ammunition. Mm-hmm. It's that kind of thing. You you you're you find in the in the things that you're afraid of in your story, you find power. So mm-hmm. if he says, if he says, my wife, you know, I don't know whether or not you have her make any have any kind of reaction to that. No, I didn't even want it like before it came You didn't like, even want it in, in the air. Like, great, oh, great. Then you don't. But you know, you could have made a decision. That you know, under other circumstances, he's an attractive man. He's a little too old, but in a few years, you know, he right. might be old enough. And he says that, and she could feel disappointment that she hadn't even realized that that she was already kind of leaning in a little bit. Yeah, I that would have been human too. But it's not. It's not that kind of story. No, it's not. And and Gloria, who's based on my my late mother Patricia Stevens, do although her middle name was Gloria mom would have been pretty i mean she would have been pretty no nonsense in that, in that moment but later she might have like thought about it you know and and i think i don't know john dorsey because i didn't get to ask him while i was writing did he mention his wife intentionally did he see a little twinkle in her eye but i, I don't know she was really all business and i'm gonna guess without knowing that or remembering that scene specifically that he did that to stay perfectly clean. <laughs> no, maybe so. He is, is in a situation sitting alone. No, no, no. Where, no, no. Where it's in they? a crowded diner. A crowded diner? Even so. Yeah. He would want, in, in the situation where he's in, he would have every reason in the world to cross his T's and dot his I's. It was To keep his behavior impeccable. Yeah, it's 1950. There so would be traps for it's him. It's a different era. People looking oh, for, sure. for inappropriate behavior. Yeah. They would look for ways to discount the you know the civil rights work and the work he's doing. You're so right that you're so right about that. And today I did my first reading, my first public reading from the reformatory novel. I read once from the short story that was published in the Boston Review several years ago, and that short story is set at a very pivotal scene. I won't go into it here, but it's a pivotal scene at the moment where Robert is having a severe trial. He's going through. A very bad situation at the reformatory. It's like, hello, welcome to the reformatory, and now you're in hell. And in that moment, 
he realizes that the ghosts he's been so afraid of are not only not his biggest problem, (laughs) to put it mildly, but they represent a kind of solace because he's telling himself there's more than this, right? That, that, I mean, the existence of a ghost, and he has a, a gift for seeing ain'ts, the, the existence of a ghost affirms that there is some kind of existence after death. Like the world, there's much more to the world than we see. And this is not all. There's more than this. And it becomes kind of a mantra, and it's a turning point to him emotionally in the story. And I want to talk about emotions a little bit. Please do. Because let me tell you something. Mm-hmm. We had a lot of conversations about the reformatory. Ooh, we sure did. And I was always trying to, my, I, look, I look at my position as I'm going to push you too far and make you reel it back. Mm. You know, so I'm, I'm, that's what I'm always going to do. And one of the things that you did was you were calibrating the villainy of different characters. You didn't want these people to be cartoonish. Mm-hmm. You didn't want this. I mean, they're the warden, for instance. It was really interesting hearing how you calibrate that. Now, you understood on some deep level the tone that you wanted this book to have. Mm-hmm. And so the, that, that that tone demanded that there not be a speck of melodrama, that, right. that every, every bit of drama, every piece of emotion had to be totally earned. There could be no cartoonish characters. There could be no large gesticulation. This was not going to be silent movie villainy with twisting the mustache. Right. No, you, you downplayed everything but what i kind of wanted to wanted you to comment about how you did that knowing you seem to know that if you did that it was going to be actually more devastating uh thank you darling i don't know that i have a ready answer for that but i like to catch you off balance if that's what i did yes well you know one of the the panels i will be on later this weekend it's a part of the world fantasy convention will be a panel about the lasting influence of stephen king and i feel like Stephen King uh, does not go credited as one of my official creative writing teachers, (laughs) but he definitely was an unofficial creative writing teacher, especially in terms of horror. And I, and I'm, and this is true of a lot of other writers too, but King would be the first writer. I noticed this in. So that's why I'm, I'm mentioning him is this, the psychological depth and realism of his characters, all of whom are flawed generally, and some of whom are monstrous, even in his latest book, Holly, you know, you're, you're, which I'm reading, I haven't finished yet, but even the little bit I've read, those villains have frailties that kind of tug at your empathy at times, I would imagine. Yes. Yeah. And, and that, so, so yeah, you, it puts the, the reader. And they care about each other. Yeah. The, see? the villains care about each other and that makes us care about them. Right. So that, I mean, just inhaling those lessons and just in terms of what I like and in, in when I read, when I'm watching a film, I do not like cartoonish characters at all. And there was going to be such temptation to narrow down generations of Jim Crow or generations of, in the case of the Dozier School for Boys, which I'll go into a little bit later, just like the genesis of the story generations of abuse, it would be so tempting to distill it down to one evil person, (laughs) when in fact, it's a lot more complex story like that. 
As a podcast network, our first priority has always been audio and the stories we're able to share with you. But we also sell merch, and organizing that was made both possible and easy with Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell and grow at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. They have an all-in-one e-commerce platform and in-person POS system, so wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. Shopify has allowed us to share something tangible with the podcast community we've built here, selling our beanies, sweatshirts, and mugs to fans of our shows without taking up too much time from all the other work we do to bring you even more great content. And it's not just us. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Shopify is also the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash realm, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash R-E-A-L-M now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash realm. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it. Or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz and how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. Whether these characters are allies or villains, they all have flaws. None of the allies are taking it as far as they could. Right. Uh, I don't think you want to yeah. isolate that horror. I think I noticed, you know, don't take this wrong the wrong way, people. But I've noticed when I try to talk to white people about racism, mm. there is a tendency to try to, to deny that it exists as systemically as it has, because it's the it's not systemic in the sense of somebody at, at some particular point passing laws. And making everything happen today. I mean, those laws were in place. Mm-hmm. But it's it generates from the fact that human beings have this tribal aspect. Mm-hmm. So if you were to localize the evil in, in one human being as if the rest of the community was just fine with this, <laughs> that would be inappropriate. If you suggested everyone were monsters, that would be inappropriate. Right. If you do that, the reader can discount what you're saying. They know that's not true. Uh, or yeah. they can say, well, it happened then, but we're so much better now. Or it happened over there with this group of people, but we over here don't have any of that. By 
by making it more mundane. That's it. Mundane. That's what I wanted. Well, that's what Scorsese was doing with Killers of the Flower Moon. Yes. You know, mundanity of evil. Monstrosity. Yeah, it's just, you know, you have literally Satan whispering in the in the ear of a fallen of a fallen man, you know, th- things that were that you know th- about the extinction of a people. Oh, their, their their time is done. They're beautiful people, but their their time is over. Mm. You know, it's 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 so horrifying. Yeah. I you know, I often talk about how much I admire your writing. And I could feel that my temptation, you could have reeled me back from it, but my temptation definitely would have been for some of these people to be more what is reasonably called cartoonish. Yeah. Well, I would have, I, I'm not sure I would have been able to resist that you know, that temptation, sweetheart. Well, you know, and I, well, thank you. I guess, I mean, I don't know. Maybe you could have. I just, I was. Maybe early readers might have said, hey, Steve, that's I, a little bit true. I, I, I really was amusing myself. At a certain point, by create because it actually made him scarier to me that he had these moments where you feel like, huh, he's making sense, or like, oh my god, I can't believe he really just told the truth about race relations in this town. <laughs> when when other people are accusing this child's father of of rape, which was often used, by the way, as an excuse to either drive people out of town at best, or Burned down an entire town at worst. It, the, you know, that was like the, the right. If you saw the birth of a nation, the 1915 version, the whole emotional core of that film is the sexual fascination of black men for white women, the fear that they want to marry or take away your daughters and to bring out the heroic Ku Klux Klan to put down this menace. Ew. And this was this movie. I would say directly caused people to die. This movie was in people's minds when they were in Rosewood. This people this at other sites of lynchings. It was such a popular piece of entertainment. If you read Robin Armin's Coleman's book Horror Noir, which is where I read this, it was the number one blockbuster film until Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, which didn't come out until the 1930s. So for more than 15 years, this is the defining piece of American cinema hosted at the White House with Woodrow Wilson. Monstrous black men want to rape and steal your women. And Woodrow Wilson <clears throat> let himself be quoted, basically saying this was like watching history writ with lightning. Yes. So absolutely. Does art have an impact on life? It absolutely does. The Ku Klux Klan loved it so much, they fashioned themselves after the birth of a nation. So... So her, the child's father has been run out of town under this pretext, you know, like, oh, he's a union organizer and he's, you know, threatening our power structure. And then there's a rape accusation out of nowhere. And and by the and I'm not going to go into too many details from the story, but the warden, this monstrous warden tells Robert he doesn't believe his daddy did that. Anybody with any sense knows that this, 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 and this. And I was like, and I loved that. I loved, I was probably giggling when I did that because he's in some ways, he, he, see, this is where I think he hides his monstrosity from himself. I mean, on one level, I think he has to get he's a monster, but on another level, he doesn't think he's entirely monstrous, you know? And yeah, it's trying to get that nuance for the characters. And also when I found myself... Because I struggled with this book. And now let me go back to the backstory, because the backstory explains why it was such a struggle to write. 
In 2013, soon after my mother passed away, my family learned that she had an uncle who died at the Dozier School for Boys in Mariana, Florida. It has since been written about in several memoirs. It was the fictional basis of Colson Whitehead's The Nickel Boys and et cetera. So it, there's been a documentary now. So a lot more people know about it then. But at the time, I had never heard about the Dozier School. So I went with my father initially to meetings. We were grieving the death of my mother together. And meetings had always been a part of our household. So, of course, we would find sort of familial comfort from going to a community meeting about the Dozier School and trying to bring the truth to light. There's a cemetery on the grounds called Boot Hill where, where unmarked, I mean, just to show you how monstrous this place was. And it opened at about the turn of the century, about 1900. Complaints about it since the day it opened its doors, pretty much, but it always withstood. It was too big to fail in the economy of this town. So it always withstood. That's my theory. It was the, the economic importance of the place, much like our criminal justice system today, by the way, made it too big to fail. So it withstands all this pressure. It wasn't closed down until 2011. But in the meantime, it was reported again and again and again for uh, everything from keeping s- students basically chained to the floggings, which were illegal in Florida, by the way, for adults, but I guess it's okay to flog kids. But I heard firsthand from one of the survivors about how when he got his whipping, the wounds were so severe that he had to go to the infirmary and have his clothing removed from the wounds in his back because he had his back had been striped with with blood after this beating this is how you beat not even animals honestly because most people who own animals would take better care of them than this and this is how these children were treated and there were all kinds of accusations and i read memoirs i talked to survivors i don't know much about the real robert stevens my mother never mentioned that she had an uncle who went to the Dozier school and I doubt very seriously she ever knew. And over the, after being called to the site and at one point Steve and I were there with my dad and Jason and Jason was about 9 years old and got to sift through the soil and and really I think connect with the history of this place. I knew I had to write about it. But I couldn't see I flirted for a second with an idea of a memoir, but I realized that that This wasn't about me digging up the history about Robert Stevens in in 1937 and and exactly what happened. This was more about wanting to preserve the childlike spirit of Robert Stevens and children like him. The spirit that had been destroyed. That had been destroyed and, and institutionalized and commodified. I mean, they got money for every child they kept there. <laughs> you know, I mean, it, there was a there's a letter from the superintendent, and I forget what year, but it was soon after the turn of the century when he wrote that the crop the crops were coming in slow because they didn't have enough boys. Yeah. They would lease these boys out to neighboring farmers. If they ran away, someone I saw post on Facebook that they were trained just to shoot if they were running. I mean, I don't know if that's true. There are a lot of stories about this place, and you don't have to believe them, but you can read memoir after memoir with people telling me. And believe me, I toned it down for this novel. And that was the difficulty. I wanted to write a story, but in order to write the story, I had to wade through this research 
And it was so hard. Like anything else that came up, I wanted to work on it. Oh, right. I've got a short story to do. Let me do that. Oh, yeah, that's what I thought. I started noticing. Yeah, that you were that you were talking about how important this was. <laughs> yeah, but you kept letting other things get in the way. I sure did. So you know, I notice. I notice what isn't said. You know, we talked about this. We've, what what is what's going on here? What what is causing behavior? And I finally started suspecting that what was going on here was that this story was going so deep inside you that it was painful to work on. It was so painful to work on. And then, but then I I came to a turning point. I forget exactly when it was. I did my first cabin in the woods where I treated myself to like a couple days in a wooded neighborhood. I wouldn't say it was really the woods. And I, I read everything up to that point. I'd say I was maybe not even three quarters of the way done, but maybe more than halfway done. And I read what I had, I got invigorated. And then, and this is no BS people. I used the life writing method to get me through this novel in the sense that I had to rely on the sentence a day. Some days over these years, I could not write even that sentence. I had like put it away in my mind and not thought about it. But there were times I consciously said, I need to return to this and I'm going to make myself know no matter how hard it is, write a sentence. And and at, at the midway point or a little bit more than midway, I used my sentence a day to write, write an outline because for some reason I did not have it outlined until the end. Hello. First problem with writer's block is I didn't know what was going to happen next. So I used my sentence a day to like beat it out, like not like full paragraphs about every scene just beat it out this happens this happens this happens this happens. did you put it on the three by five cards or no, like no, a no, google no. doc what, just what within the document i probably put okay. it like it like it as a placeholder like okay then all this stuff is going to happen next or maybe i did have an outline file i don't remember now and then the more significant thing or as significant thing that happened was covid And again, I probably got sidetracked working on a script or sidetracked because we're adapting projects for TV. All that is very heady and exciting when you're getting your first opportunities to write pilots and things. So I had plenty of great excuses that I thought were just reasons, but they were excuses. And when I once I had that outline now, my sentence a day could turn to the text. And when COVID hit... It dawned on me, and I'm talking about pre-vax COVID. I'm talking about there's no toilet paper COVID. I'm talking about we're all watching the the Tiger King for some reason COVID. OG COVID. We don't know what's going on. I realized, oh my God, I could die before I finish this book. Right. Like I and I talked to Steve about it. We designated someone that you would work with if 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 you had to finish it and right. or in and, and that's how serious. And when I re- and when I realized that, I remembered another thing I teach <laughs> that can help you get through a project, which is called a page quota. And yeah, I, didn't we actually we actually laid out a graph? I had I made a chart. Yeah, I made a chart, so it was in my face. If there was a zero, one day it was in my face. So I I could not lie about when I was working on it. And my page quota for a novel like this. It's a good three pages a day for a novel like this works for me, three to five. There are some novels I've worked on that move faster that would be more like five to seven. But this, I would have been happy if you'd been doing one page. Right. You but, know, seriously, because what mattered was that you were stuck telling a story that I knew was extraordinarily important to your family. Right. You know, and this was of all the books that you have written, the the, the novels that you've written, this is one that your parents 
you know, were like on your shoulders while you were while you were working on it. You know, thank you, honey. And over that course of time, I mean, it, it, the idea came after my mother was already gone. And of course, it's so sad to me that uh, I've never been able to share with her. It was her uncle. It was her father's brother. I mean, I think what happened to him would answer a lot of questions about the strained relationship she had with her father and that my grandmother had with her father. It, it explains a lot, actually that this happened and it was such a trauma to this family that they didn't even mention him uh, after he died, or at least as far as I know. The people I've talked to had not heard of Robert Stevens. So that page quota, whew, it was magic. You know, just pour it on, pour it on, like every day, day after day, I could see on my chart, three pages, four pages, two pages, zero, zero, you know, and there were some weeks that were bad and some weeks that were great. And before I knew it, I had an entire novel and the journey didn't end there because COVID, COVID delayed its release. It was actually optioned for television two years now before, or at least two years before it's coming out by Missouri Kaplan and SK Global. Mitchell Kaplan was my 10th grade English teacher, and he's one of the producers on this show. Well, the show we're, we're building, hopefully. And that is another full circle moment. So I am incredibly grateful that the book is finally coming out. It has a great editor in Joe Monte at Saga Press. I've been very impressed by the paces Saga Press is putting me through to promote the book, but to return to what I was saying about the difference between being a writer and being an author, the writer is the quiet part of you that just creates and goes in the flow. The author part of you is the one that's trying to go out there promoting your book. Right. I look at those as being the difference between the child and the adult. It's And it's a lot, you know, I haven't done this particular dance in a long time. It's been years, in fact, and I remember even in my 30s, once I met Steve, a book tour was a lot less interesting than it used to be when I was like, oh, who am I going to meet? Then, you know, and now post-COVID, I'm finding that I have way less patience for travel, not just because of fear of COVID, but just, I guess, generally speaking, I'm in a different stage. I, I like being at home. I'm a homebody. I like being at home with our you're son definitely and our a, You're definitely a nester. I'm a nester. Like, yeah. when I get to a hotel, I have to put, like, everything in place and feel like i have my bearings before I can even have a good night's sleep. So planes, airports, hotels, none of these are my favorite thing right now. And I am so grateful for the support from my publisher that, of course, I'm going to do it. And when I do it, I want to clarify if I'm meeting you in a crowd, I'm not gritting my teeth, hating you. I'm having a good time once I get there. It's the, <laughs> it's the travel piece. It's like if I could just teleport places, I could do it all day. Right. But the the travel tax is high and it feels even higher now. Not being able to sleep in your own bed. Yeah, our bed's you know, it, lumpy right now, actually. It, it's not just that. It's being able to wake up someplace where you know where everything is and you feel it. And, you know, we wake up and we know that Jason is safe in the other room. And my cat Django is curled up that's at right. the foot of the that, bed. That's right. You yeah. know, that all of that is part of what home is yes you know home is a place where you're not expending energy just to walk around in your underwear right you know right. just you know at a hotel it 
it belongs to somebody else. Yeah, and it's not always equipped with just even simple things. I was in a room, not this one, recently that didn't even have as much as a coffee maker or a tea kettle, you know, and you know how much I love to make tea. Right. So they brought me one when I asked. And the same at this hotel, there was no microwave. Well, guess what? I don't want to be a slave to room service. So I'm going to heat up my leftovers and I need a microwave to do that. Right. Yes. So yeah, it's yeah, you know, I didn't even ask the hotel to set up a microwave. That had never occurred to me. Oh, that was just because when I, I was teaching at Antioch University, Los Angeles, and we, we moved to Atlanta and I started flying in and staying at the hotel. That was the real gig when you got to actually stay in the hotel. And I learned from other people that you could order fridges and microwaves God, and all kinds of stuff. I've forgotten that you were, you were commuting from Los Angeles to Atlanta. Yeah. Holy Crap, every month you were going twice. Well, no, it was, a, oh yeah, it was, no, just once a month. Once a month? When I was yeah. filming. So, so this is, and this part, you know, that hopefully is helpful to others of you who feel the same way. I, I have, you know, there've been a lot of authors on this podcast who, who talk about their tours and I'm just like, oh, that sounds exhausting. And they, they are getting sick and they, you know, so just be careful out there. Just because places are open and we can go without masks doesn't mean that we should. I mean, maybe other people don't need to mask as much as I do I because I am just determined I am not getting sick. But be careful out there. I've had to really remind myself to practice my meditation. I've had to really remind myself to do my my physical work with the five Tibetans, which Steve has taught me to do. Look those up on YouTube. I really will do yoga probably tomorrow if I get a minute here. It's just... We can absolutely do yoga together tomorrow. Yeah, that would be great. Yeah, let's do that. It's so vitally important not to... And and I say this with all seriousness. You you heard us when we had Cheo Hadari Cooker on the show say that he that John Singleton had make, been making movies for 25 years, but a couple seasons of television killed him. And while that may not be literally true, I also have a dear friend and mentor, Elon Harris, who passed away in a hotel room while he was pitching in Hollywood. And trust me, I'm paying attention. I'm paying attention. That is not how I want to go out. I'm not going out, if I can help it, in a hotel room. So you just have to remember that our energy is finite. And don't be afraid of getting help. For the first time, I have a little social media help. It's not as expensive as I thought. I didn't even have to pay my password, uh, share my password, people, because on Facebook, you can bring in an admin who doesn't have your password and they can cross post to Instagram. Hello, get help, get help. And don't feel like you can do it all. There are sometimes I've had to say no to invitations for interviews. Just I'm looking at the calendar. I'm looking at my schedule that day saying, ooh, I need to breathe a little bit. So. In any case, I am very, very excited about the reformatory. It ha- I, It's gotten probably the best reviews of my life. I think it's the most Tanana Reeve do novel that you've ever done. <laughs> you know, my soul to keep was for many, many years. And I think that in terms of your novels, you did other fine work, but you didn't do anything that, that eclipsed it. It just, yeah. And I, I suspect you- the reformatory could eclipse my soul. Ooh, well, I do tell people, I don't know, because I can't say, I do tell people it might be my scariest book. Well, at least within a particular circle. It's right. not going to have the same yearning heart aspect, I think, that appealed to a lot of your women readers, because right. they too had this this feeling of, of wanting love and not knowing when not they can trust. With. So you were tapping into something there. Right. But I think you're tapping into something different here, something that isn't as universal and hasn't been tapped as deeply. I mean, every Lifetime movie is about, can I trust the person that I love? Right. 
right. You know, and you True. did something unique with it. <laughs> True. The reformatory is different. And I think that if people decide to go along for the ride, first of all, they're going to find very elevated prose. You, you, it's written beautifully. Thank you, sweetie. And, and secondly, you're going to see a real piece of your heart, why it is that you and your parents and your family have been so committed to social justice, you know, for generations. This mm. is, this is from the deepest part of your heart. And I think you're going to, you're going to deserve your success. It's going to be very successful. Well, thank you. And re and listeners, please trust me with this story. Some of the reviewers have said it. I think I'm just going to quote from Stephen Graham Jones, because he sums up what I would want to tell you about how I'm approaching this as a story. Okay. This first part is okay. Moby Dick. <laughs> Any blurb that starts with Moby Dick, I'm like, huh? No. <laughs> <laughs> Moby Dick might have flipped America on its back to show the rotting underbelly, but the reformatory is looking just as closely at our bad history and somehow finding the heart beating underneath it all. This is a novel I've been waiting for. It breaks your heart, but it also holds it together. And that's a re that's from Stephen Graham Jones, one of my favorite writers, but also is really meaningful to me that he and others seem to feel that, that I'm taking you through treacherous territory, but I'm taking you with care. And please trust me that I am writing a different story than the one that happened to my real uncle, my real great uncle, Robert Stevens. This is a different story. Well, all I know is that it took you longer to write it than it's taken you to do anything else. That's for sure. And I think it's worth the journey. You know, people talk about, you know, why should movies, you know, movies cost $250 million. Yeah, but it still only costs you $15 to get in. Mm -hmm. You know, the question is, does it give you $15 worth of, of entertainment? Not, is it worth $250 million? With a book like this, on the one hand, yeah, you want to pay attention to all the work that the writer did, if that kind of thing interests you. But what you really want to know is, if you put this pick this book up and you spend the, the five, seven hours, 10 hours to read it, what's going to happen? What's going to happen is you're going to be reading one hell of a book. And it's, you know, it, it was worth the seven years that she put into it. It's sure going to be worth your 10 hours to read it. So just read this book, people. I think it might be my best novel. I think it might be the best novel I've ever written. Yeah, I think you're so, I think that's right, right. Anyway, you all go out and make yourselves the heroes and heroines of your own story. The hero in the adventure of your lifetime. Bye-bye, everybody. Don't forget to get the reformatory. Bye-bye. You've been listening to the Life Writing Podcast. Join us next time for more conversations about creating the project of your dreams. For more information, go to lifewritingpremium.com and get ready to write for your life.